0: Well, if you keep your Bibles open to Psalm 2, uh, this week and the next uh, two Sundays, we are going to be looking at passages in the Psalm, the, the, the Psalms that give us a, 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 a deep picture of who Jesus is. And maybe it's uh, this Sunday, I feel like I'm preaching to myself. Because Christmas, uh, when growing up, and I grew up in a Christian home, I'm not faulting that. We read the Christmas story, but Christmas was about a whole lot more than the birth of Jesus. It was about gifts, it's about getting stuff. I can remember this one Christmas when I was 12. I had secretly gone out a few days before Christmas when we opened, and I uh, just kind of opened the president enough and saw that I was gonna get all the things I asked for. A camera, Kodak, it's a piece of junk. (laughs) I got a guitar that I never play, haven't played in 20 years. I got a weight bench. I've lifted weights five times in the last decade. And sitting in my living room after the presents were opened, I was, frankly, somewhat depressed. Here I am. I'm a follower of Jesus at this time. I'm 12 years old. I put my faith and confidence in Christ alone. It's Christmas Day, and I have a letdown because I got everything that I wanted. Christmas is practiced by our culture. I think lures us into a sense of complacency, a sort of superficial understanding of Christmas. And you see it everywhere. I've said it before, and I'm just warning you. One day it's going to happen. I'm going to snap. I'm going to get an airsoft gun. Not a real gun, an airsoft gun. And I'm going to blow up the Christmas decorations where people have the nativity scene and Frosty the snowman in it at the same time. I'm going to jail, but what makes me happy is the church has just started a prison ministry. So <laughs> Andrew Zakari will visit me once a week, along with Fernando Faria. I get to see them at least. We can easily, every single one of us, even those of us in this room who are following Jesus Christ, you can lose sight of what God was trying to accomplish at Christmas, particularly if you don't understand Psalm 2. What was happening at Christmas is is God in his grace and mercy was attempting to restore the entire universe by sending his own son, fully God and fully man, to the world. He would live the life we should have lived. He would die the death we deserved. Our sin would be placed on him to, to allow us, if we put our faith and confidence in Christ alone, to receive the very righteousness of Christ so that we individually could be restored in our relationship with God. But that's not all. It was the redemption and the the, the repair of the entire universe that was at stake in this plan where Jesus came into the world. Jesus coming in the flesh, fully God and fully man, was the only way for God to satisfy his justice. Sin would be dealt with but to simultaneously demonstrate love to a very, very broken world. So this morning, we're going to look at sort of the, maybe the other side of Christmas, certainly compared to where our culture is. And I suspect that in a room this size, there may be a number of you who are, um, you're still making up your mind about whether to put your faith and confidence in Christ. I'm glad you're here. Maybe you've come with a family member under duress. I'm glad you're here. Psalm two is going to challenge you to keep seeking and to make a decisive decision about what you're going to do with Jesus. But I suspect many of you have already put your faith and confidence in Christ. Psalm two rightly understood and internalized should help you respond to this broken world with a lot more hope and a lot more joy than you probably are living out right now. So what Psalm 2 gives us, he gives us four scenes, as it were, four pictures, and sort of describing Jesus and, and what it meant Uh, for him to come to the world and what God was trying to do. Four scenes. We want to look at each of these scenes. We want to see Jesus more deeply, more comprehensively. But all of us, whether you are already following Jesus, whether you're still making up your mind and, and you've got questions, the psalm is going to call us to respond to this Jesus. So let's look at the first scene. It's in verses 1 through 3. The first scene, what what, what the the writer of this psalm paints for us is that the world is morally confused and is in rebellion against God. Take a look at verse 1. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Again, this psalm is is an enthronement psalm. It'd be a royal psalm. It certainly refers in the near term to David becoming the king of Israel and to any other Davidic king that came after him. But we know from the New Testament, this psalm is quoted as much, if not more than any other psalm in the New Testament. We know that the ultimate uh, identification of what the psalm is about. is about Jesus, the king. And the picture here is of a world that is angry. That word rage means a, sort of a noisy assembly. There's angst. There's upset. People are plotting in vain, verse 1. There's irritation. There's unrest. And a deliberate attempt to, to, to make plans and to plot against the very authority of God. We know this took place when David became king. There were surrounding nations that opposed him and God. But in every generation, with every Davidic king, and including at the time of Christ, and including our own time, this is the picture of the world. Notice what these these rulers, these angry rulers and these peoples are saying. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. People want to be free from God's authority. They want to be free not to obey God's word. They want to be free to live their life without reference to God. That is the picture of the world in any generation. Think about what it was like in Jesus' time. We know from, from the scriptures that the wise men came from the east. They saw the star indicating that a king had been born and they came to Jerusalem and said, where is the king of the, you know, the, the king of Israel? We've seen a star. And Herod and, and all of the people of Jerusalem are upset. In an uproar, Herod says, go find where this baby was born. The scribes said he was born in Bethlehem. Go find him, come back and tell me because I want to worship him. But we know the story. When the wise men don't turn up back at Herod's palace, Herod authorizes the extermination of every male child two years and below. I was talking with another somewhat disturbed congregant who was thinking like me, and we were asking the question just last week, why is it that the slaughter of the innocents doesn't make it on your Christmas card? But that gives you, I think, a sober, sobering picture of what Christmas was all about. God is in the process of attempting to, to rescue a world where the world at large is shaking their fist at God and saying, "I'm going to do it our. we're going to do it our way, not yours. We want to be free from your tyranny. It's the way it was in David's time. It was the way it was in every Davidic king when he was uh, enthroned, and it was the way it was when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and it's the way it is today. Everybody, when they come into the world, are little rebels, conspiring together in all kinds of ways to reject the authority of God. And the results, frankly, are catastrophic. We see today even, certainly in my lifetime, you see world rulers shaking their fist at God, hiding their corruption, not coming, getting uh, held accountable for, for their unjust actions and food shortages and famine And children being abused and neglected. Life cheapened at every possible level and at every possible age. Absolute chaos. The reality is the Bible is very realistic and has been telling us chapter after chapter throughout the Old and New Testaments, this is the way the world is and we see it. And if we honestly internalize Psalm 2, what we see even in our own country, even in our own city, should not shock us and should actually probably be not, uh, you know, cause us to be overwrought. It's been happening since the beginning of time. And of course, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and confidence in, in, in Christ alone and you're not really sure about the Bible, I mean, I, I think it, to, to just to, to any kind of sort of intellectual integrity would say that the path that the world is on today, it's not flourishing. It doesn't lead to human beings flourishing. It leads to destruction. And maybe you need to give God and His Word a more careful look this is the first scene. Now, there's a second scene here in verses four through six. And it, what we see in the second scene is that God has a plan to install his king in order to reorder the world. Take a look at verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Well, what we notice here, God has a plan to, to repair the broken world. But what's interesting is God, unlike us, is not unnerved by the rebellion and destruction he sees on the earth in the sense he's not panicked by it. He's not undone by that. In fact, God doesn't even get up off of his throne to deal with the raging nations. He sits on his throne in his uh, sort of confident repose. And he even laughs, not because, it's not, not because it's funny, not because he's making light of the suffering of the world. But when he sees the peoples of the earth and the kings of the earth and the powerful people of the earth shake their fist at him, he has a plan to deal with it. Well, what is that plan? Well, verse six, we see, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Part of God's plan in choosing uh, the Jewish people to become this nation, this nation that was supposedly to be set apart unto God and would would display the glory of God to the nations. I think Psalm two could have applied to any of those Davidic kings, but all of those Davidic kings failed to do fully what God wanted. but there would be a Davidic king. That was Jesus. And in God's plan, he wanted this Jesus, who was the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, to come and to to lead and to to provide leadership to restore the world under the authority of God. Jesus is a king. Now, I know know he was a baby Jesus. I think a lot of us like him to be the baby Jesus because you can manipulate him in the nativity set, as I did as a child. Jesus was on top of the stable. Jesus was riding donkeys and sheep as a baby in my house. We like that baby Jesus because, well, it means we're probably going to get a lot of stuff. We like the baby Jesus because, well, the baby Jesus couldn't speak like any infant. We don't like to think about King Jesus. The king that God has set over the world because a king is someone you have to submit to. A king is someone you have to bow down to. A king has the right to tell you and direct you and to command you. Who needs a Jesus like that? That's the second scene. There's a third scene here. Jesus the king will bring an end to the rebellion of the world. This is verse 7 through 9. And this is the king. This is Jesus speaking. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now what is being told to J- Jesus, you are my son. It, 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 Jesus was the son of God, for sure. He was the son of God from the very beginning. We know in John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This phrase, today I have begotten you, you are my son. I, I, I think it's is, is, is not, certainly not referring to the fact that Jesus somehow became the son or he was born and then he became the son of God. He was always the son of God. We know from the New Testament when Paul speaks of of this fact, he says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power in his resurrection from the dead. So the the, the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus are displaying what was always true of Jesus. He is this king. He is the son. He is the co-regent with God, the father of the universe. So what we see in Jesus, yes, Jesus came to die for our sins. Yes, Jesus came so that we could be back in a right relationship with him, for sure. But it's way bigger than that. Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, he manifests his glorious kingship, his co-regency with God the Father. In verse eight it says, "Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." He is the King over the world. And in verse nine, we, we read about Jesus, this King, this co-regent of Christ, this Son of God. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, that doesn't sound too Christmassy. Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to rule. Jesus is going to reign. Jesus is going to crush the world crush the rebellion in the world. And I know for a lot of people, you don't like that idea. You like the Jesus who was loving, who said, love your neighbor. You like the Jesus who says, you know, love your enemy. You don't follow that, but it's a nice sentiment. Certainly your enemy should think that and love you. But I submit to you, would you want a world ruler who wasn't going to put an end to injustice? Do you want a world leader who's not going to deal with sin? Do you want to live in a world where the powerful people get away with all kinds of corruption and never get held to account? I don't want to live in that world. And that's what we see here. Jesus, the king, will bring an end to the rebellion of the world. God is very patient. He's very merciful. He allows things to continue. But we are not going to be able to shake our fist at God forever. He's going to put an end to it. And that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Jesus Christ is about. Yes, redeeming us by his grace, but also coming again to set the world back to the way it ought to be and then some. Jesus is not simply a baby that makes us feel kind of cozy at Christmas. He is the king. And he will put an end to all rebellion and sin one day when he returns. And of course, that's a, that's a sobering thought if you want to think about that clearly. Clearly. It's easy to look at the world. I mean, you can just read the New York Times this morning. There are so many wars. There's so many corruption. In every article, it's depressing. But it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, God, Jesus is going to stop all of that. But what about you and me? You don't think we've rebelled? You don't think that we've caused a fair amount of destruction in our lifetime you think about the 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 angry words that you have said to people even people you love people in your own home the damage that you've done with your words well, well that's not going to be dealt with some of us have pretty pretty uh, judgmental thoughts about about well maybe, maybe about the person you're sitting next to in the pew you don't think that causes distance You don't think God's concerned about that? These are people made in the image of God and you're judging them. Or how about the fact that God gives us so many blessings, so many wonderful things he's given to us, including Jesus who restores us to God. And yet when we have a trial or a set of three or four trials in a row, we forget about all the things God has given us for the last 20 years. And what do we do? We complain. We whine, we moan. We, we, frankly, we shake our fist at God. Why won't you answer my prayer request on my timetable? It's no different than the kings of the earth who rage and the peoples of the earth who rage against God and conspire together. We're rebellious. We, 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 we won't allow God to do what he needs to do in his time. And the minute something goes wrong with us, we don't. We move away from God because we're just like the kings of the earth in our own rebellion. And God will deal with all of that. The last scene, scene number four, how will you respond to King Jesus? Verses 10, 11, and 12. The psalmist then turns to how do you respond to this king, this son, this co-regent ruler with God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King. Verse 10, he says, therefore, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. He's warning. The psalmist here is appealing to all of the rebellious, powerful people in the world. And of course, many leaders have not listened to that warning. Do you know how many kings, I mean, I was going through it, there's too many to count, how many kings and rulers over the last 2,000 years have publicly stated that they were trying to stamp Christianity out and the name of Jesus out? Well, let me assure you, those kings are dead. And Jesus is still at the right hand of the Father. He goes on to say in verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In other words, we need to fear the king. We need to to fear Jesus, a a reverential awe to Jesus. Not a Jesus we can manipulate, a Jesus who is our king. And he says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Kiss the son. This would have often been done in the ancient world when this psalm was written. When a a victorious king conquered another kingdom, the conquered king would, would be ushered into the throne room. And that conquered king would have to bow down to the victorious king, bow down and kiss the feet of the victorious king as a sign of submission, as a sign of honor, as a sign of obedience. the psalmist is saying, kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. There's hope here. There's hope that If you will submit yourself to King Jesus, if you acknowledge I'm a sinner and I'm a rebel and only in you through your death and resurrection can I be right with God, you are the the king who is going to restore the world. If you bow down to him, stop trusting in your own goodness and trust the beauty and righteousness of Jesus and what he did on that cross. the righteous and appropriate opposition to sin that God has and that Jesus has on that throne can be dealt with, and you won't perish. But that offer that the psalmist makes is it, not going to be available forever. The Lord could, Jesus could come back this afternoon and then, and then that's it. Or, or you, you can die and, and, and your opportunity to kiss the sun has passed. He concludes with saying, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Again, the grace, gracious and merciful appeal of the psalmist. Before it's too late, before time is up, The anger and appropriate opposition to sin that God has can be dealt with in Jesus, in his sacrifice. He's a king who came to save you. He's a king that laid his life out for you. So let me encourage two groups that I talked about earlier. If you haven't made up your mind about Jesus, if you still have questions, that's fine. That's good. I encourage you to go through that process because the stakes could not be any higher. And for those of us who already know Christ, we of all people should not be undone by the the rebellion against God and his word that we see so flagrantly today. It's been in every generation We should not be undone, why? Because we have a king who not only died in our place, we have a king who's coming again and he will right those wrongs. We need to live in light of Psalm 2. We of all people should have the most calmness and the most peace and the most hope in this world, not because the world's going well, but because we know the king who is going to come and repair it. And in the midst of that, As we demonstrate a consistent understanding of Jesus, the full Jesus, all of what it meant for him to come at Christmas. We, like the psalmist, should be appealing to our loved ones, the people we love, the people we work with, the people we go to school with, the people in our neighborhood, people in our own family. We, of all people, should be pointing people to Christ and lovingly and graciously encouraging them to kiss the Son before time is up, before the wrath pours out. So who do you need to talk to or pray for more consistently? Who do you need to talk to between now and Christmas? Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Tells us who you are. I pray that you would help each of us, wherever we are spiritually, whether we're following Christ for years, whether we're new believers, whether we're still trying to understand who Jesus is and make up our mind. I pray by the Holy Spirit, you would help each of us to make a decisive decision to follow this king, this son, this co regent ruler of the universe who laid down his life, not only to bring us to God, but to repair this broken world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.